and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 55th episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we also have a very special guest on the podcast, and his name is Brandon Kempter. So we have had Brandon on the show before, all the way back in February of this year for episode nine. But, you know, now it's December and Brandon has had one hell of a year of competing. He's actually just wrapped up his 2019 competition season. So we thought we would ask him to join us on the show again and uh, pretty much see how it all went down. So thank you so much for being here today, Brandon. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be back on the podcast and massive congratulations to you guys on uh, the 55th episode. And I understand this is also coming up to 12 months of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. And there's been many awesome episodes. So uh, once again, congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) It was only a matter of time before we got you on again. And yeah, like ever since we knew you were doing your own prep, we wanted to get you on after that and discuss everything. And that pretty much leads us up to the first question as well, which is basically tell us a bit about your prep in general. What was your plan of attack? Because it's pretty amazing that you were able to do this alongside all your clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a pretty crazy season. So um, a bit of an overview. Um, Basically, the actual season itself was seven weeks in duration, comprised of six shows uh, through Australia and the US. So that in itself was a big season. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the actual season itself in a moment. But the preparation itself uh, on the lead up to show number one was a 28-week duration, plus, of course, the seven weeks of competition season, in which case you've got yourself 35 weeks of essentially preparation time, which is the better half, uh, or, you know, essentially three quarters of the year. So it's quite a, quite a length. Um, within that time, the 28-week preparation, uh, basically I spent, I'd say about three quarters or just over three quarters of that period dieting with the final stretch of that, that um, competition preparation phase spent essentially reducing the deficit and reversing in the shows. And between our shows uh, in the, through Australia and US, I basically spent most of the time at maintenance. And I'll talk about that in a bit more depth in a moment. Within this time, it was definitely pretty challenging. I'll say season B was is the biggest season for me from a coaching perspective. It's about double or triple the size compared to season A. So I will say that brought with it some unique challenges in terms of keeping my, my own headspace together and working with so many athletes. And that was definitely a massive focus point in that I never wanted my athletes to feel the fact that I'm dieting. So as you guys know, from a cognitive standpoint, um, it can be pretty challenging. So I got very good at record keeping on paper, et cetera, just when my brain wasn't functioning at capacity. And of course, you know, dosing my caffeine strategically. So I had the mental uh, capacity to to talk with my athletes in a, in a human manner. Um, so it was pretty challenging along the way, but it's all part of the fun. It's sort of what you, what you sign up for. I will say, although uh, I did most of the preparation on my own, I, I did have the, the helpful eyes of my great friend, Nathan Wallace, along the way. And I have to give that gentleman credit um, he did. I caught up with him weekly. He tweaked my posing, and he was also, uh, particularly in my peak week, he was my eyes. So uh, again, um, I got to give him credit for that because uh, he def- was definitely instrumental in terms of keeping my headspace in check when I was in that period at the back end where you just lose that objectivity from a visual standpoint. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds. Uh, we know how regimented you are and like you do have that fine detail with yourself and all of your clients. So it definitely yeah. showed. And can you please let everyone know, like um, if they've seen you on social media, I'm, sh- I'm sure they know res- the results, but how did you go this season? Um, 
I, I would say pr- pretty all right. Um, well, look, through Australia, we had the ICN uh, national show, which was the first pro show uh, for the season in Australia. Did that. Um, I had the honour of, of winning first place in the pro lineup there, which was absolutely phenomenal. And to be honest, it, it, every time I, I win a show, it, it surprises me because I walk in there just knowing that I brought my best and, and on the day I'm fine with whatever result because that's not up to me, it's up to the judges. So to have that that honour was fantastic. Uh, a couple of weeks later, we had the ICN World Championships, which is which was also in Australia and Melbourne. It's, this is actually the last time it'll be in Australia for a good apparently 10 years, oh, wow. which was uh, apparently at least, which is very mm. exciting. And again, I had the, the honour and pleasure of winning that, which was absolutely fantastic. From there, I competed in IMBA, won an overall there. Then I went and competed in the PMBA show, so the pro show in Las Vegas, uh, sorry, not Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles, the universe. I placed a third there. There were some really big boys there, absolutely. Uh, then I did the WMBF Worlds, um, got a second there. That was that was a fun show. That destroyed me a little bit, but that's good. That's a good thing. Um, and then we had the last show was the OCB show in Portland, and that was a bit of a throw-in show, and it was a bit smaller than expected. So I uh, also won overall there. So, yeah, good season. That actually ties in nicely <coughs> to um, one of our listener questions from Lawrence Greaves, and he's asked – what was the biggest difference between the natural bodybuilding scene between the U.S. and Australia that you found? Look, I got to I got to say, definitely the standard in general is really really good in the U.S. I think that uh, the USA, the U.K. and Australia in particular brings some phenomenal athletes to the stage. Not to say that other countries don't, but just in general, like a, in, in a populational basis, the standard is very high. Um, I thought the, the U.S. Was, was pretty great. My biggest thing is I wanted to immerse myself in the culture over there and see what it was all about. I met some great people on the way. On the most behalf, everyone was really welcoming, and the standard, I think, was, was very high. The WMBF show was a, a real highlight for me in that it brought together essentially 60 countries. Uh, so you had such a variety of different, different athletes there, which was fantastic. Uh, and the standard there, uh, as you would know from a national standpoint, um, it's – I would say up there is the top tier in alignment with ICN at least. Yeah. Yeah. And especially getting to meet all the big names as well. Um, like the ones that stand out to me, like 3DMJ, Godfather, um, yeah. like Alberto Nunez. Yeah. I think everyone up there, you know, in the natural bodybuilding scene is affiliated with the WNBF. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to, to quite a degree. And I think that's, and you know, if that says anything about the standard they bring, then, then absolutely it gives you a fair idea as to, to what it's about. And I would say it definitely doesn't, didn't disappoint from, from the standard, uh, from the perspective of bringing a quality standard, absolutely. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, you know, as dietitians, Brandon, we are super interested in nutrition. So we'd love to ask you, you know, some questions about your plan of attack in terms of nutrition for this prep. So sure. did you do like anything specific, for example, implementing high and low days, refeeds, diet breaks, and when would you make that decision that you had to make adjustments in order to keep pushing? Yeah. Look, I can give you a fundamental overview. This is the one thing, as you guys know, but I'll put out to listeners, is just that the methodology I employ was obviously specific to my physiology and, and current environmental situations. So it won't, just so as a disclaimer, it doesn't necessarily fit in with, with everyone as a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously for myself, uh, within this 28-week preparation, uh, I plan to get the majority of the aggressive dieting done in the first 
uh, of the preparation duration. That usually has uh, myself or my athletes about 80% ready um, or, or a bit further by around the halfway mark. So the first section was relatively aggressive. Initially, I started with a what I would call a linear diet, one set of macros uh, that are run throughout the week. And then, as you know, as you get into a, the into your preparation, uh, there does come a, uh, a time in which you need to balance uh, your requirement to train in the suboptimal environment that is a caloric deficit, uh, whilst obviously pleasing the necessary deficit to make the losses you require. And this is really where I think dietary uh, nutritional periodization comes into play, in which case we look at high and low days. Um, now, in my scenario, I incorporated initially one refeed that went to, to two to three refeeds, and they were sort of incorporated or introduced slash sort of omitted, dependent on the look of, the, of myself and where I was uh, in terms of my progress. But I would say from around four weeks, or actually less, about three weeks in, I was starting to incorporate high days, and those high days were uh, at calculated maintenance. Um, and throughout the, the period, we, we used these high days, uh, not just a means of feeling trained performance, and potentially slowing down metabolic adaptation, but also as a means of assessing the response, uh, my body's response to that incoming carbohydrate as a means of uh, data accumulation for peak week. However, at the back end of preparation, there was some pretty interesting alterations to my nutrient partitioning, in which case um, you know, you're always recording data, assessing, manipulating based on what you're seeing, based on your metrics. So yeah, I was just going to say, and diet breaks, um, I did incorporate a diet break uh, throughout this period, um, but it wasn't. I didn't incorporate them as frequently as I'd first planned, uh, as I did need to push a little bit harder at certain sections. However, by the end of the, the competition preparation, particularly between my shows, I was essentially at, back at maintenance. So the hardest portion of the comp prep for me was around sort of maybe six to four weeks out. And that was about the time where everyone else was in season. And probably the hardest, probably the only day I'd say I really struggled with was actually the, the ICN Queensland show where I had, um, on that day, I had, uh, I think, 14 athletes across three different states competing. So I was in-person coaching. I was on my phone, on video calls, et cetera. Uh, and that day was one of my last low days before a period uh, of refeeding uh, over three days. So that day in particular, I was sky dragging my feet pretty hard. Um, I probably had a bit of an upside down smile on, so I appreciate if anyone saw me at the show. Um, and after that, my calories did come up incrementally uh, back to maintenance, in which case I was around, I was averaging well over 600 calories above my lowest by the time I was at my, my second show. Gives you a bit of an idea. And um, I, I know that obviously these numbers are unique to absolutely everyone given their physiology, you know, their environment, their circumstances, their body composition, but just getting yeah. into the dirty details, like just in interestingly, <laughs> you know, what were your, you know, your calories and your macronutrients compared to like your, like your improvement season phase compared to yeah. how they trickled down during your competition phase and were like, were you looking for a certain rate of loss in terms of body weight per week? Yeah. I mean, look, the way I always approach it from the perspective of assessing progress is number one visual and that how you look when shows. I think that when it comes to tracking metrics for the bodybuilder, uh, your qualitative metrics are the most important piece just because it's very hard, as you know, to have uh, really consistent qualitative metrics that you can rely on. Uh, I did have my skin folds done my uh, along the way as well, which is probably probably has the most correlated power to body composition change uh, on a 
you know, yeah. So we, we utilize that. Um, and then of course we did use body weight trends and I did have a planned rate of loss in certain sections and that tapered down as we went through the comp prep. So as I mentioned in the previous podcast, you know, there's a, a maximal volume of energy we can liberate per unit of fat mass. The less fat mass we have, less total energy we can liberate. And if we exceed our capacity to liberate energy from fat mass, then we tend to dig into lean mass. And that means that we need to go fast at the start, or at least logically, I would interpret it as going fast to start, slow at the end. It's probably a good protocol if you want to get very lean and retain maximal volumes of lean mass. So I did have a, a plan rate of loss. Off the top of my head, I can't remember it because that's all in my diary. Um, mm-hmm. And a good general point for all competitors is to literally journal everything. So I actually have about 48 pages, um, which I continue to do through the off-season, but perhaps not as religiously, where I actually record uh, not just basic trends like body weight, but also how I'm feeling, how I'm looking, and photographs, etc. cetera. Um, there was another section to that question, and it, my memory fails me. <laughs> no, that's I okay. I, I wanted to remark on something as well, and that's like, um, like in our opinion, that's where using a percent is really helpful because if you give yourself like maybe 1.5% at your heavier body weight and like less than 1%, like closer to prep, like, I don't know, six to 10 weeks out, then that'll automatically be categorizing a lower proportion of fat mass loss. Yeah, absolutely. And I would do similar. I would use a percentage. But one thing I will mention is that different tools for body composition assessment will have different correlated power to true changes in body composition at different times of the preparation. So let me explain. Let's say, for example, if we're using body weight trends as a means of assessing progress, the first week of dieting probably doesn't have much correlated power given you're going to see depletion in muscle glycogen that affects body weight. Through the center portion of preparation, skin folds and body weight trends for a natural athlete, not the enhanced, but the natural athlete, tend to be pretty good predicators of changes in in body composition. But right at the end, when you're managing changes to one's nutrient partitioning capacity uh, and you're also seeing uh, a rise and fall in in stress hormones, et cetera, that's probably when body weight has a little less correlated power and we tend to see these sort of um, hold and drop scenarios in athletes. So right at the back end, it's this is where I think tracking a trend over sort of one to two data points over a seven-day time point becomes more important. But this is really where I think as coaches, we, like, we, we use our eyes a whole lot more because you might hold that body weight for a chunk of time. Um, you're ticking all the boxes in terms of uh, providing an appropriate uh, caloric deficit and, and retaining training performance as best possible. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you get this big one kilo drop. It's like, wow, okay, there's the last you know, 14 days worth of accumulated losses that we've materialized on the scales that perhaps we couldn't see because we had such high cortisol. And that, uh, sorry, yeah, um, your cortisol levels are high. And as a product of that, you know, we had some level of mineral corticoid stimulation and we hold, hold, held a bit of fluid for a time. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all love numbers and we all try and like more, the more numbers we get, the more we can analyze. But we have to remember as well that it's an aesthetic sport. So um, that's where the yeah. photos and seeing, especially seeing someone in person makes all the difference. It does. And this is the hardest thing. It's like, you know, <clears throat> I work with a few other coaches, a few coaches basically doing some mentoring with them. And the hardest thing working with them is they go, okay, cool. I want to, I want to, let's talk metrics. Like, what should I expect to see from a, you know, a qualitative standpoint at certain sections of preparation. And all we had is guidelines. I can say, cool, but these are perhaps the points you need to think about when you're assessing the qualitative side of things because that's like, that's where the bread and butter is. And so it makes the, the art of coaching so challenging to sort of to teach or to learn is exactly that. 
And Brandon, you know, in terms of training, did your exercise selection, training volume and intensity change at all throughout different phases of the prep? Like how did you attack your training during this past phase? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, it did change uh, a little bit over time. I would say that from a training perspective, what I generally do with myself and my athletes is um, we keep training relatively consistent through the preparation phase. So as I always say in the off season, Training is more dynamic, you know, moving metacycle to metacycle. We have really specific goals that we want to, or, or traits that we want to adapt to. In comp prep, we keep things pretty similar as we want a base to assess progressions and regressions in, in performance. Uh, so, and obviously within that, we, we do mod- modify, or slash I did modify training volumes in accordance with my current recovery capacity. But the movement selections in particular, I did make some alterations to throughout preparation simply to manage fatigue. So we know that um, when we calculate volume, volume being sort of the amount of work performed, and everyone has a different metric of accumulate of assessing volume, whether it be through total total reps, sets, uh, times reps, times load, etc. But one thing we need to note is that different movements carry with them different levels of fatigue, uh, fatigue accumulation. So deadlift, for example, is a phenomenal movement in its contribution to developing the bodybuilder. But when you're dieting and you're trying to manage you know, applying appropriate stress to tissues, but minimizing those uh, central components of fatigue, it's a pretty challenging movement. So in my scenario, for example, I went from doing a sumo deadlift through the off season to a trap bar deadlift to then going to a Romanian deadlift as the predominant posterior chain move, for example. And there was some other alterations. Unfortunately, I had uh, some injuries that really through the center portion of prep, I nearly didn't actually get on stage due to some injuries. And I can talk about that if you want. Um, but that was some, uh, so there was quite some modification to movement selections as I went through through that time. Yeah, we would actually, uh, me personally would love you to, to talk about your injuries and how, like what they were and how you dealt with them throughout prep. Yeah, sure. So like, I don't think, I think as, a, as advanced athletes, you know, we always accumulate a few bits and pieces here and there, despite our, our best interest to, to maintain uh, you know, to prevent injury through intelligent programming, etc. But we do push our bodies very hard, particularly as naturals. We're working advanced naturals. We're working on pretty much the upper limits of our, our you know, tolerable volume in order to maximise a hypertrophy. And that is going to be um, a it's, it's an interesting balancing act. And then obviously, as you get into preparation, your recovery ceiling decreases, your minimal effective dose of volume for retention of tissue increases, and you're really walking a tightrope in terms of applying appropriate stress for retention of tissues so your injury risk goes up and in my scenario i had a couple of issues that i'd, I'd had in the past so i have had um uh grand chicantric bursitis in the past that was obviously in remission at the start of my preparation but essentially what happened is um i had a, a re-emergence of that that uh grand chicantric bursitis on my left hand side and i also strained my vastus lateralis so i had a a slight strain through there, which basically meant that a lot of quad movements were out of the equation for me. And it had it forced me to train in a pretty unconventional way uh, throughout the preparation. At this point, as I merge into the off-season, um, things are definitely looking up on that side of things. But it meant that I couldn't leg press at all, and that's my primary move for building thickness through my adductors and quads. But I could V-squat, luckily, just a different angle of loading. I couldn't do full range leg extensions for quite some time there, but I could do partial range leg extensions. So as a product of that, I think, you know, through intelligent training, I was able to keep stress to tissues, or most of it at least, but I don't think I brought my best legs in into this show in terms of thickness front on. Um, but, 
yeah, so that's just essentially how it went. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, we both knew you were injured, and but we didn't know what the injury was. And like you revealing that to us now, we wouldn't have guessed that it was your quad. So yeah, I think anyone looking at your stage shots would not assume that uh, you had issues with training your legs to full capacity. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I definitely, as you guys know, um, I love training legs. My favorite thing, if I could train legs five times a week, I would. I have a bit of a, I don't have an ego in general, but I have a bit of an like a a personal ego when it comes to training legs and in that I think it's the hardest thing to train in terms of, you know, mental fortitude. And that is what attracts me so much is like, all right, like I got to mentally bring it. Um, but that's a good thing. I'm pleased to hear that it wasn't so noticeable. The one thing I would say that my quads in general probably retain mostly, but it was more my adductors, uh, that thickness front on by the end of my comp prep, I was like, I have a thigh gap. What is this? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. But mentally, how did you like, how did you deal with that going through that Brandon? Yeah, look, mentally, it's always a bit of a head screw. As you guys know, it's definitely a shiny point. My biggest thing is I, I, I like to think of things uh, from the perspective of, of being grateful. So I'd sit down and go, okay, if I focus on what I can't do, I'm going to be really frustrated. But I'm going to focus on what I can do, and I'm going to exploit that. And I'm, I'm going to be grateful that, hey, I'm a fully functional individual. I can walk up and down stairs and do everything. But maybe I can't leg press. But you know what I can do? I can uh, walk, function in my activity activities of daily living and I can do partial range lead extensions and a hell of a lot on V squats. All right, let's do this. Um, and as you guys know, being really driven as an athlete uh, makes life pretty hard. So you, because all you want to do is push. And at that point in time, definitely I would have sat down and went like, what would I give right now in order to be able to go lead press? The answer to that is a hell of a lot, but you know, you're, you're at the mercy of your body's recovery capacity and you've got to treat it right. If you want to get to, to that, uh, top end for you know of conditioning etc mm-hmm. absolutely and you know Brandon uh, apart from you know the difficulties you faced with leg training was there a certain point in prep where you felt as though you lost strength in any other body parts or have you ever noticed that there's a certain point with your athletes as well that you know you can just no longer progress with a certain movement yeah look 100% there is um, and I think there was certainly a time where I did have a bit of a reduction in strength capacity. Um, and I've mentioned this before chatting with other, other people about, uh, or other coaches about using strength as a proxy for increase or decrease in lean mass. And I think a lot of people do this. They say, cool, if you're increasing strength in hypertrophy rep ranges, you're probably increasing lean mass and, and vice versa. If you're reducing output, you're likely losing, losing muscle mass. And yes, to a degree, that's certainly true. Yeah, if we have more muscle, we have more contractile tissue. That, in theory, should produce more force. Um, but, of course, there are other things that affect your strength capacity, uh, things like sort of, you know, there's a neural component, there's a skill component, there's a leverage component, and all three of these things are affected in prep. So, you know, towards the back end, uh, your leverages aren't that great for increasing, uh, you know, for, for lifting big weights on compounds. You find it very hard to pack tightness in your belt because your waist is as thick as a, like a twig, and that affects <laughs> loading capacity. So, uh, at the for me personally, just to keep things short and sharp, at, towards the back end there was a reduction in strength on certain movements, particularly big posterior chain movements and um, free weight pressing movements. However, on standardized isolation movements like hamstring curls and leg extensions, I essentially retained slash saw improvement throughout the preparation. Um, on the most part, that section where I had that injury on my on legs, on my quad, yeah, I didn't actually progress at all in leg extensions there. And on machine-based movements where 
you know, that the movement is very consistent and doesn't change in association with your leverage as much. Those movements I, I retained on quite well, and they seem to be stronger correlators, at least thinking logically, to changes in muscle mass versus like a, a squat or a deadlift for that matter. Mm-hmm. I think, and I can certainly speak for myself now, you know, I'm in prep too, and uh, like it always seems as though it is those pushing movements that seem to suffer, whether it's like a barbell or a oh. dumbbell OHP or a bench press, you know, you just can't push the same amount of weight anymore. So, you know, how how do you usually go about tackling that? Like, for example, if you just can't shoulder press the same amount of weight, you know, how would you work around that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the number one thing that I always bring to the gym is my psychology. <laughs> so we know that we're trying to perform optimally in the suboptimal environment that is dieting. And we know that when there's a fueling issue, there's probably some changes to your levers as well. Um, and we also know that when we're training in a somewhat glycogen depleted state, that it does affect central drive as well. So really playing with my with your training arousal is probably the first thing that, that I do personally. I know that certain movements that aren't... Uh, Movements that I'm technically proficient on, I require high levels of arousal in order to get best performance, and I need even higher levels of arousal in comp prep. So the way I kind of look at it is I'm a, I'm a very calm person, and I would say I'm quite a nice person, but at the back of a comp prep, I need to be in a position mentally where I can stab someone repetitively and feel good about it in order to get you know a really good set out on those Romanian deadlifts or that, or that bench press. So you know, one thing I do is bring my training arousal to the gym. Um, I go through all sorts of weird psychological things. I'd use music, obviously, as a means of modulating that arousal. And if the strength output isn't there on that given day, then I need, you know, I make peace with the fact that, you know what, I gave my 100% effort. There is no way that someone could have outworked me on this given set. And that's how it is. I'm okay with that and move on. Because again, it can be, if you're, if you're really married to the numbers, it can be pretty psychologically damaging. Hit your first movement. Okay, I didn't make that. The whole rest of the workout's crap. Well, that's not really how it goes. Perhaps that first movement was a bit challenging. Perhaps you can, you know, retain or overload in some alternate movements throughout the session and make it a very productive one at that. So just playing with your psychology and, and on the front of arousal and then obviously accepting what you can and can't do on any given day in preparation because training is turbulent in that time, hey, as you know. Yes. <laughs> So this sort of leads into our next question, which is quite psychological as well. So we know you had Nathan who assisted you, but um, what was it like coaching yourself through prep in general in terms of make, was there any difficult decisions and how did you address that psychologically? Oh yeah. I mean, look, look, I will say like, it wasn't a total, like I said, it wasn't a total, totally solo journey in that Nathan was definitely instrumental there. Uh, and I will say that my partner, Rachel was also very instrumental. She knows what, should, what I need, to, how I need to look at certain times. So I did lean on her. Um, but nonetheless, there is some, definitely some difficult decisions along the way and managing it from a psychological standpoint, you'll have to ask her how I manage it. <laughs> <laughs> she was the one that coughed it, unfortunately. Um, oh, I, could, I couldn't give you much, man. It's, it's like, um, like a typical competitor, like um, this might not even apply to you at all, but like they might get, um, worried that they're not lean enough in time, which obviously would not apply to you. But um, scenarios, yeah, you know, I think you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Like yeah. where you know you you make the decision to drastically decrease food or drastically increase <laughs> output, you know, just based off one day's scale weight. <laughs> yeah. Look, to give you an idea, for myself at least, my biggest thing is, is not going too hard. Um, I the main as many things I love about bodybuilding, but one thing I really love about bodybuilding is that it 
represents something that a lot of people can't or simply won't do. And the hardcore aspect of bodybuilding is something that really, really attracted me in my young years. So for me, it's never a matter of like, do you think you went hard enough? It's like, man, you went too hard, you hurt yourself. Or you went too hard nutritionally and now you're just degrading lean mass unnecessarily. So really where where I say Nathan was very, very um, instrumental in is putting the brakes on it. Like, dude, you're okay. All right, thank you. I need to hear that. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm like, huh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll outwork or can I, you know, I'll put 10% more volume on, on this session this week. That's, that's not intelligent, dude. So that, from my standpoint, that's usually where, where I'd go. Um, and second of that is the, the question I'd always ask myself is, would you do this with your athletes? It's like, mm-hmm. well, no. What would I do with my athlete? Well, I would logically assess the metrics in front of me, both quantitative and qualitative. Uh, and then I would, okay, I would obviously make my decisions based on what I'm seeing there in alignment with current evidence-based recommendations. So applying that logical mindset to myself was definitely helpful. And I will say it's got easier over the years because I understand a whole lot more about not only my own body, but also over the years we've got more intelligent in terms of understanding uh, the physiology and biology that we are influencing through nutrition. And that affords one, the capacity to, again, think logically about, okay, well, why is my scale wet up a little bit this way, you know, at the moment? Why am I looking how I'm looking in relation to the these few nutritional or environmental alterations, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I guess it's about finding that perfect balance about, you know, trying to be able to separate yourself from it emotionally and just looking at it objectively. And that is really, really challenging. Um, absolutely. Even from a coaching standpoint, you know, you, you need to be uh, – you know, you, you have to work with your athletes and, and think about how this affects them versus just looking at them as a on paper and going, just do this. So mm-hmm. when you're working on your own, on your on oneself, that becomes even more challenging, definitely. Yeah. And you know, Brandon, when critically analyzing your prep, is there anything that you would have done differently or, you know, lessons that you've learned that you would have liked to apply to future preparations? Look, there's always hindsight's twenty twenty. There's always something you can find to improve on. The number one thing I would have liked to improve on, <laughs> there's actually a couple of things. Uh, one is don't get injured, so manage my recovery better. Um, second of that, don't use Dream Team WMBF Worlds, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another another day. <laughs> um, and and the final piece I would say from an off-season capacity is, is probably managing my off-season um, body composition a little bit a little bit better. I had a very nice starting position I would say for this preparation. But there were periods in the off-season where perhaps I got a little bit softer than I needed to. Um, and aside from that, I think things were done pretty well. But I'm sure I could find something else. <laughs> Do you mind? I think people would be dying to know about the Dreamtown scenario. Like, are you okay talking a little bit about it? or? Yeah, I can give you a bit of insight. Um, pardon me. So Dreamtown, as you, as you guys know, is a super popular product in Australia. Uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal um, top coat. And I have a particular, or my partner and I have a particular way of which we apply it in conjunction with another tanning agent in which it works very well for my skin. My skin is an absolute pain in the backside when it comes to tan in that I'm the person that puts a top coat, uh, a base coat on at night, wakes up in the morning white. My skin just does not take it. So I do rely heavily on Dream Tan and most shows are okay with it. WMBF uh, obviously have a very strict rule about it. Um, to the point at which it's a disqualifiable offence to utilise it, in which case I should have been disqualified, so credit to them for not doing that. Um, whether it affected my placing or not, I can't say for sure. Um, but what I will say is is maybe it did. Um, 
and I, I did I was spoken to by uh, one of the organizers of the event about it so um, in hindsight I, I would have definitely paid closer attention to the fine print in terms of, of utilizing that just so that I was you know giving myself the best chance of placing well on that stage yeah Mm-hmm. And do you know if that's a new rule that they recently implemented? Because I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts from the team at 3DMJ, you know, and they are all heavily involved in the WNBF, but they also mentioned that they're big advocates of Dream Tan. So have they only yeah. recently implemented that rule? And why is it a rule? Look, it, it is, it is from what I can gather, a new rule. To give you an idea, in Australia, we've as you know, we, we've there's been years where Dream Tan has been banned, but it's not something, as in on paper, but not something that's been enforced. It's like, hey guys, if you can use another another tan, Dream Tan, another agent, uh, tanning agent, just because you know it marks the venue. And I'm always very respective of that. Obviously, make sure we're not making a mess with the tan. And I, to be honest, I was aware that it was we weren't supposed to use Dream Tan. Um, however, I looked on the posters. This is this is naive me. I looked at all the posters from all the previous overall winners from WMBF and went, they all use Dream Tan, mm. <laughs> and I went, oh maybe it's not actually a, that it's not a, something they actually enforce very very aggressively, and went ahead and utilised it because I wanted to look my best for the day, and I know that that helps me essentially look my best. Of course. So if that was a, from what I can gather at least, by my understanding, the first year of which it was introduced, and it was something that was enforced with quite some vigilance. Yeah. So how did you conduct your peak weeks and did this method change at all between shows? Because you did do quite a few sh- shows by the end. Yeah. So it did change a little bit as I went through my season. I will say that for, for me, uh, when I get flat, I get next level flat uh, to the point in which, you know, my legs look like absolute string beans until I carb up. And it does take me quite a, a volume of carbohydrate and it does take me multiple days in order to... Um, to take in that carbohydrate, that uh, that carbohydrate, and deposit it in my in my tissues. So coming into show number one, uh, I essentially utilised a front load, and off the top of my head, it was somewhere on the lines of two up, one down, one up show day. Uh, and then I had a two week gap between the next show. Essentially, I mirrored that, but but I was more aggressive at the start of the week, just looking at the the data accumulated from previous. And after that, the following five shows were back-to-back. Now, back-to-back presents a pretty unique challenge. I will say it's a unique challenge if you need to get leaner because you need to deplete muscle glycogen to a point where you can start to, to mobilize and utilize fat mass and then load up again. In my scenario, I didn't need to get leaner. So by the end of the comp uh, prep, I basically had three days. Uh, it was a moderate volume of carbohydrate, 2,600 calories, and then I would load 500 carbs one day 500 carbs, two days, and then I would go in the show. And depending on what time I was on stage, I'd load it anywhere from 400 to 700 grams of carbs on the day. And I just washed, rewashed the exact same protocol throughout. And that basically had me retaining my body weight plus or minus a few hundred grams on a week-to-week basis. So basically three moderate, three high. Uh, well, actually, no, sorry. Three moderate, three high plus show day uh, into each show. And um, in terms of food choices, you know, did you continue to eat the similar amount of foods that you had during prep, but, you know, just larger volumes of those carbohydrate-containing foods? Or did you manipulate anything there? Did you do manipulate anything in terms of, you know, water or electrolytes? Three kilos of asparagus to drop water. No, I'm just kidding. Damn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a diuretic. (laughs) Uh, Look, I'm very... 
I'm all about tightly controlling my variables where possible. So coming into the back end of my comp prep, I was quite simplistic in my food selections for two reasons. One is I wanted a, a, a quantifiable base to assess, for, you know, progression or you know, uh, progression or regression from, and I knew what food selections sat right with me. And um, there was a second point to that, but. <laughs> Yeah, I kept things essentially the same throughout the back of the preparation in terms of food selection and modified the volumes uh, to answer your question. I am very meticulous, so I do like consistency and routine in my across everything from the time which I train to the music I listen when I train to the food selections I utilize. But one thing that was quite interesting is traveling. So when I got to the US, there was obviously some changes in a couple of things. One is food selection availability differed a little bit because everywhere I went, never had a kitchen. I cooked everything in a microwave. I got very good at that. Um, <laughs> Second of that is the nutritional labeling is a little bit different. For example, on diet products in Australia, um, the Monster Energy drink that I just consumed then, they actually label the calories from the high-intensity and low-intensity sweeteners. In the US, FDA rules state that if it's sub-five calories per st uh, standard serving, it's a zero-calorie drink. It's not zero-cal. Nothing's zero-calorie unless it's water, or air, or minerals. Second of that is obviously net versus... Um, gross fiber that differs between Australian and US labeling. So I had to get my head around that. And then, um, yeah, just the general the cooking restraints. So that was actually a pretty good ex. I kept things pretty consistent, I will say, but it was a good exercise in showing me that, Hey, I could probably be a little bit more flexible when I require, uh, due to, you know, those aforementioned limitations. Yeah. That's definitely a difficult scenario when, because everyone who's in comp prep is very regimented. They don't like change. And then going to a completely new country and having to get your head around all of those things. Absolutely. Even from a work perspective, I am very consistent. Wake up the same time, train the same time. Between X and Y time of the day, I'm on my computer doing this. Everything's listed. Task for the day, task for the week, task for three months. In fact, to the whiteboard to the left of me, there's a bunch of goals, both personal business and whatever. Uh that, that need to be done over the next few months. And that's how I operate. So definitely going over there was like, hey, here's a spanner in the works. But you know what? It can be done. <laughs> definitely. And, you know, Brandon, now that you have entered, you know, your post-show period, you know, you're now in, in your improvement season phase, how are you finding the post-show period? Absolutely fantastic. It's great right. to have, you know, some brains in this cranium again. Uh, <laughs> look, it's... Uh, Look, on the most part, absolutely fantastic. I've come out of this show more motivated than ever, um, partly due to my results at WMBF, for example. That's, I think, definitely been a real positive thing in that I'm, I'm very driven. Um, I'm currently planning a 70-week phase into the next show in 18 months' time, um, and I've got you know a bunch of goals within that. But it's been really great. Um, as you know, the, the decrease in perceived energy that you experience in comp prep happens quite gradually. As you emerge at the other side with the quality recovery strategy in place, your performance increases quite rapidly, and it's and you don't really realize how far down the rabbit hole you were until mm -hmm. after. Um, and you know, in, in comp prep, there's a being lean is just not comfortable. You know, my the the fat pads on the base of my feet were so thin that I couldn't walk barefoot because it felt like my calcaneus was going to stick into the earth. Um, sitting for long periods of time was absolutely horrible because my ischial tuberosity was going to puncture my glute max. Um, Little things like that. My headphones are falling off my head because my face was so skinny. <laughs> um, so coming out the other side, it's like, wow, you know, my productivity is through the ceiling. My training performance is great. Life is comfortable again. I can hold a conversation with my partner. This is fantastic. So um, very motivated and um, 
yeah, feeling really good. Only, you know, what is essentially three and a half weeks post-show at this point. And um, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, because obviously we know when you uh, go through a prolonged extended diet, there is quite a degree of metabolic adaptation that occurs. But Mm. some people do, you know, experience in that post-show recovery period, they start, you know, increasing calories and everything. But metabolic adaptation, you know, it kind of it reverses. Have you experienced anything like that where your metabolism is now much higher and you find that you are coping with higher volumes of food than you would have expected? Um, I mean, there's, a two, there's two parts to that question. I'd say, mm-hmm. yes, I, I'm certain I would have experienced some regular, uh, some level of true adaptive thermogenesis. I definitely had a decrease in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. This was evident in terms of the speed of which I walked and the alterations to my walking gait. I dragged my feet. I tell my partner, you need to slow down because I cannot keep up with you. <laughs> Two weeks later, well-fed Brandon's walking ahead, five paces ahead of her, and she's like, you need to slow down. So there's alterations from a non-exercise activity thermogenesis uh, perspective. Um, I would say there's likely some level of suppression from a, in terms of true adaptive thermogenesis that, Genesis. That is, of course, a decrease or increase in metabolic rate that supersedes what can be calculated through changes in body weight and or NEAT. Um, but of course, I don't have a qualitative base to assess to what magnitudes. But uh, coming out the other side, my calories are definitely increased quite substantially. But I will say that having the opportunity to reverse back to maintenance has made my life a lot easier in that mm. the effect in terms of delayed satiation and such crazy hunger post-show is considerably less this recovery diet is probably a little less aggressive than my last, in which case I, I pushed up quite quickly, perhaps a little quicker than I'd hoped, whereas in this scenario, everything's pretty much moving like clockwork. I feel pretty comfortable. Pardon me. By the day, my hunger sensitivity is decreasing. Um, my satiety, biofeedback signals in general are feeling pretty normalized. Probably a bit more to go, but pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that a lot of athletes struggle with is the compliance, but, um, and like, how would you, like, we know that's not an issue with you, but how do you address that with your clients? Yeah. Before I get into my clients, I'll say this. I am not perfect in the reverse diet like most people. I'm about as perfect as it gets in comp prep. I will say that throughout the entire preparation, there wasn't a thing that wasn't recorded. Um, but in the, re- in the recovery period, I'm going to enjoy a date night each week with my partner. I'm still going to record it, mind you, and estimate it, but it's not going to be to the to the gram. Um, but compliance in general is definitely the most challenging thing coming out of a comp prep. You often hear about people say, people mention that I'm hungrier in the in the in the period after the show. It's realistically from a physiological standpoint, you and I know like you're not actually hungrier. It's just simply that you've now just taken out the the goalpost that was show yeah. and. Now you don't have something to rationalize, you know, remaining hungry and sticking to the plan. So that's where things get a bit challenging, uh, absolutely. And, and managing that's pretty hard because you can give your athletes all of the uh, knowledge in the world. It is up to them to quite a degree to, to apply it. And yes, as coaches, we can, within our scope of practice, work with their psychology. But um, I, think, I think certain personality types tend to handle post-comp better than others. And then second to that is probably how we, how we, uh, how we die to them in the first place will definitely come into play as well. Mm, yeah, we definitely found that. And yeah, from personal experience myself, I probably stuck to it a little bit too intensely and it ended up backfiring for me. So there's definitely a, like a middle ground of like staying too lean for too long and versus gaining too much body fat, I guess. 
Absolutely. And I always tell my athletes, you know, if they've, if they've been exceptionally lean, which is most of my athletes I work with are bodybuilders and figure, they definitely fit that category, is that, hey, what's the first thing we need to do? Well, we need to put on some fat mass to show this body that energy availability is now compromised and start to uh, give your body the tools to normalize, you know, uh, its physiological processes. And the goal is always we need to put on some body fat, not the universe worth, all right? So... <laughs> So, so Brandon, you know, you touched on obviously you're in your improvement season now. You've got a plan of attack for the next 70 weeks. <laughs> uh, you know, tell us about, you know, what are your main goals for this improvement season? And we also got another listener question, which ties in from Riley Kent, which was, what's the main focus point for your physique to compete in the next competition season? Yeah. So essentially my season, much like uh everyone else's should be it should be really based around sort of three predominant pieces there one is maximizing protein accretion so putting on muscle two is ironing out symmetry and obviously doing this through appropriate volume distribution from a training perspective uh and then lastly is metabolic optimization which just refers to as you know creating the most inefficient system possible from an energy utilization standpoint so for me personally in applying my off season i've got 70 weeks which really, let's just say we've got around a 30-week preparatory phase, which gives us around 40 weeks of effective gaining time. Within this time, it'd be preferential for me not to have to run a mini-cut because it is what I'd consider quite a short off-season. So I want to spend the entire time gaining, which means I need to have a somewhat conservative there we go, approach in terms of my rate of gain to ensure that I'm not accreting unnecessary fat mass, noting that it's probably impossible for me not to put on any fat mass, but we need to keep it minimal. From a developmental standpoint, the couple areas, I'm telling everyone my secrets here, my weaknesses, uh, that I feel as though I can improve on, aside from overall muscularity, is going to be a little bit more delt front on, so that I can create a bit more width in my most muscular and my front lat spread, um, more reductors, and I would say traps would be a general area that, as well that I can improve on. And then there's a final point, you could say my carbs that are little baby carbs. So chuck 30 sets a week on those to see how they go. Um, and they're probably the, again, we're going oh, to, I need to grow everywhere, but that's, that's probably the main areas there. Delts, carbs, traps, seductors. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like a very solid improvement season plan. So does that put you in um, season A 2021? Correct. Yeah. So the reason I'm doing season A is because season B is a very challenging time for me in terms of managing my athletes. Uh, and there is a lot of opportunity in season A as well from a, uh, from a pro standpoint. So I plan to do a couple of shows through that season, some uh, nationally, hopefully, and, and a couple international shows. Awesome. Great. All right. So, Brandon, we're pretty much coming up on an hour here, and I'm just amazed by how much content we have covered in the last 50 minutes. Pretty incredible. Insane. Yeah, there's, there's been some absolutely great questions there. And, yeah. um, you know, to finish on this last question for the day, which we always ask all of our interviewees, that is one thing that you learned this week. And, you know, it doesn't have to be related to nutrition or exercise or anything. Just one interesting thing that you may have learned. This is actually the most challenging question of all. <laughs> um, oh, actually, yeah, I'd say one thing I learned. Uh, so uh, one thing I've learned over, over the last week and a bit, um, most recently, is how to drive on the opposing side of the road. And that was something that um, took quite some time in the US. And I'm going to say that was a couple of really close near misses. Something to get the heart rate up, particularly when you're uh, in a competition preparation, you know, level of depleted mind. So I had to get heavily caffeinated, not for training, but to drive to the gym. And um, that was very unique. Absolutely. 
Yeah, that would have been scary. Because when you go around roundabouts, it's the opposite way, isn't it? It's roundabouts and intersections in general. <laughs> um, and I will say that I uh, hope there's no US police listening here. But there was one moment in LA where it was 2 o'clock in the morning after the universe. And I, I always go and train legs after a show. And I'd finished up and I filled up the car with fuel. And I was by myself. And I just drove out of this intersection and just sat for about 10 seconds on the wrong side of the road and then had an oh hell moment and just went, I am on the wrong side of the road, uh, just on autopilot. Because again, it's something just requires such immense focus all the time. But uh, that's all part of the fun. Absolutely. The US experience. God, that would have been terrifying. I'm glad you're safe. (laughs) So am I. Well, you know, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, before we sign off, please let everyone know where they can find you and how they can pretty much get in contact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So once again, thank you very much for having me. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is just Brandon Kempter. Super simple. You can also find me on Facebook at Brandon Kempter. Feel free to drop me a message. I'm always happy to add friends in there as long as I get a message. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. All right, guys. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Brandon, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we will catch you next week.